everybody, and welcome back to Theology Without the Bullshit. After a long break, I have just come back from a wonderful couple weeks in Paris where I was visiting friends and profiting from uh, all the great cuisine, libations, and all the uh, historic sites and history therein. And so it's good to be back. I know I've missed our conversations, Paul, and I'm really excited to be jumping back into this and going over uh, some, some more uh, developments in early Christianity. Derek, it's good to converse with you again, and I hope you remember that during the Middle Ages, the University of Paris was probably one of the most important schools of theology. Thomas Aquinas was professor there, so was his teacher, Albertus Magnus. So John Calvin is from Paris. So Paris is very how does notre dame cathedral look by the way at this point it was it was surreal it was kind of like a graveyard uh there's barriers all around it it's like a fencing that goes even two blocks ahead of it so you can't even really get close to it and you can only see it from afar and i was walking down the street looking at it and there's this british couple behind me and they were just standing there and she's like it's almost as if somebody died she observed so you can't visit it at all anymore no, it's it's completely blocked off because it's just the structural integrity is is not sound enough for. So they're um, not even having mass on Sunday anymore. Oh, you can. It's completely decimated on the in, okay. like the roof okay. has completely collapsed on the inside. Okay. Okay. So wow. basically, it's the exterior that's intact, but it's um it's it's really sad. But you know they'll rebuild it. It'll be fine. Right. And it's just right. another chapter in the history of one of the world's greatest churches. Sure. Okay. Um, and to uh, contrast the uh, the Paris school that you just mentioned, the University of Paris, while I was studying abroad in Paris, I was on academic probation for skipping class. So I think I had an, op- oh. an opposite <laughs> academic experience while studying abroad in Paris. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, but um, you had mentioned that at the beginning of this episode, you wanted to mention uh, a useful handbook of, of uh, theological oh, terms. Right. Yeah. For those of you who are interested in pursuing the study of theology and the history of theology and are just getting started with it, I recommend highly that you buy a little book. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. It's by a scholar named Van Harvey, H-A-R-B-E-Y, Van, B-A-N is his first name. And it's called A Handbook of Theological Terms. It's a very short little theological dictionary that gives you a very precise and accurate definition of all the technical terms in theology. And in virtually every course that I taught uh, to seminary students in the four seminaries where I worked, I always assigned that as required reading and uh, insisted that students use it regularly. And I wouldn't have made it through either seminary or graduate school if I hadn't had the benefit of Van Harvey's dictionary. I I can't recommend it highly enough. There are other theological dictionaries out there, but I don't recommend them as highly as I do this one. Well, yeah, that that very book saved me a lot. I mean, I I used it as a reference. I learned new words every day. I'd never heard of all these words. Learning Christian theology is like learning a new language, and there's all these terms to— you know, to sift through. And so it was really helpful. So yeah, uh, if we're dropping theological terms, it'd be helpful to have a reference like that. Good. And we've probably okay. already dropped at least half the terms from that book already right, up right, until this point. Right. But right. Uh, awesome. All right. So what we want to talk about tonight is moving forward from uh, our conversations on Augustine uh, and his theology 
uh, kind of putting a bow on that piece of, of history, well, not history, but uh, that chapter, I should say, um, we'll be talking about uh, two different controversies, time permitting, and we're going to start with the Donatist controversy first. And so, Paul, let's have you take it from here and uh, outline the, the scene and the developments at the time. Okay, Augustine was embroiled in two great controversies in his life that profoundly shaped his contributions to subsequent Western Latin-speaking theology. The first was the Donatist controversy, which gave us his doctrine of the church, the priesthood, and the sacraments. And the second is the Pelagian controversy, which gave us his doctrine of salvation, of grace, predestination, etc. Let's begin with the Donatist controversy. The Donatist controversy was a sectarian movement that broke away from the Catholic Church on account of the belief that the Church has to be holy. And what the Donatists meant by holy is holiness in a subjective sense. That is to say, the members, and especially the ministers or the priests, the leaders of the church, have to exemplify the highest possible degree of moral rectitude in order for the church to claim that it is holy. Now, if you read the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient document that goes back to approximately the 2nd or 3rd century in the church at Rome, there is a line that says, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And Catholic here means universal. I think it's important to know. Right. That, yeah. it, it means universal. It does not mean Roman Catholic, but it means that the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church is the whole phrase. And the question at stake in the Donatist controversy is what does it mean to call the church holy? And for the Donatists, they understand by that term that the members and especially the leaders of the church embody a holy lifestyle that approximates the moral ideal as completely as possible. And for this reason, they broke away from the Catholic Church because they believed that the Catholic Church had members and leaders who did not embody this high spiritual and moral ideal. What are some examples of what that would entail? When you say moral rectitude or moral ideals, you know, what what was that? What were they comparing that against were the the one group of the church were they just not doing things the proper way were they acting out in uh, an improper way what did they observe as problematic well let's talk about how this controversy began it began before augustine was even born in the situation of the church before it had become legally tolerated by the Roman government. So when the church underwent persecutions, 
the Christian ideal was that Christians would not compromise in any sense with the Roman governing authorities, say to burn incense to the emperor or worship the Roman gods, or, and this is the particular issue that got the Donatist controversy started, to hand over scriptures and other sacred utensils that were used in Christian worship that the Romans were trying to confiscate. So, unfortunately, human nature being what it is, not everybody is a superman or a superwoman. And when you're faced with persecution and torture and possibly even death, people cave in. And so certain Christians compromise their Christian faith in order to save their necks. And once the persecutions were over and Christianity was officially tolerated, and then, of course, it, after it became tolerated, it became officially recognized as the religion of the empire, some of these people who had failed from a moral and spiritual sense to defend the faith at all costs were received back into the Catholic Church. And the Donatist controversy got started when someone objected to the ordination of someone else by saying that one of the persons who was officiating in that ordination had been what in Latin is called a traditor. Traditor means a betrayer, someone who handed over the scriptures and the sacred utensils of worship to so, the in, Roman authorities. In other words, a traitor, right? Is that where we yes, get the Latin a traitor, traitor? Of course. That's exactly where we get the word. So because this person was a traditor, the ordination in which he was participating was sacramentally declared invalid by this critic who said the church's sacraments cannot be valid if they are performed by someone who failed to uphold Christian faith at a moment of, of testing and crisis. So simply so, put, we've got this guy who's being ordained as a priest— and the individuals who were what, laying their hands on him during a ceremony or whatever that ceremony looked like to bring him into the priesthood was nullified by this person's uh, perspective because that it, individual it should had been have been nullified. It should have, it should have been nullified. And, and here's where the split came between two understandings of the church and the ministry. Now, from the perspective of, of, the, of the critic... The whole, the whole ritual was invalid because it was performed by someone who was not a morally upright person. Mm -hmm. And so the issue that's presented for thinking about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church and the ministry, the priesthood, is whether one of the church's sacraments can possibly be valid if the person officiating at it is not a morally upright Christian. And that's what I mean by speaking of subjective holiness. The people who are in the church, whether as members or ministers or priests, 
have to be living morally upstanding lives in order for the church's ministry to be religiously valid. Mm -hmm. Now, this controversy was going on long before Augustine became a priest and a bishop in North Africa, but the sect of the Donatists had become especially influential in North Africa where Augustine was the bishop. And so he had to take a stand on it, and since he is a bishop of the Catholic Church, he had to defend the practice of the Catholic Church in bringing back someone into the fold who had exhibited a moral lapse at a moment when ideally you'd want moral heroism from that person. Well, wouldn't, okay? wouldn't Augustine himself be guilty of that same moral lapse in his earlier years? Yes, but not when he was, uh, uh, yeah, but, but it's a different story because, you know, he's repented and, and he had become a, a priest and then a bishop and he's living according to the moral standards of the church that whole time. It's not about him, it's, it's, it's about the issue. I get it, so you have to already be a priest and then screw up and lose that moral quality or character. I, I think so. I, I mean, the, the issue is not about whether someone was a scoundrel before their conversion. Sure, gotcha. Okay? The, the issue is whether when they are in the church, representing the church in one of its official capacities, whether uh, that function, that liturgical or sacramental function of the church is rendered invalid if they do not exemplify the highest possible moral standard. And what Augustine, what he does by way of response is to develop an objective understanding of the church's holiness so that the validity of sacraments and of the church's ministry in general does not depend upon the subjective holiness of its members and ministers. So that means that if I'm a priest, and let's say I'm whoring around on the side and nobody knows about it when I'm supposed to be chaste or something like that, celibate, uh, and I baptize you, your baptism is still valid because the validity of the baptism does not depend on my moral character as an individual. I am functioning as a priest in an official capacity on behalf of the church. So I'm standing in as Christ's representative when I baptize you. And according to Augustine, the church's holiness is an objective character that is not dependent on the subjective morality or immorality of its representatives, so that even if you should find out that I was the chief of sinners and had been whoring around while you were being baptized, you don't have to you know, raise your hands to high heaven and, and ask yourself, oh my God, is my baptism invalid because Father O'Flaherty, who baptized me, turns out to have been in a, you know, uh, uh, a moral scoundrel or, well, uh, like, like, let's just take the issue of, of sexual abuse in the clergy that's become such an important issue in the Catholic Church in recent decades. How many people do you think watched the evening news only to see their parish priest being taken to prison after he had been accused of uh, molesting 
an altar boy or something like that, right? Or a yeah. girl. And this and in this that, argument is the is the fact that despite that occurring, the sacrament could was still valid even though the person who performed it was morally dubious. Right. And that's that's the significance I think theologically of Augustine's argument, the anti-donatist argument. And that is to say when I am a priest functioning on Christ's behalf and I am ordained to this particular office. Uh, and this is crucial, the, the understanding that the ministry is an office that can be distinguished from the person who's holding the office. Now, now don't, don't get anybody wrong here. Augustine is not giving license to people to go and be immoral priests or immoral Christians. He's talking about, uh, you know, should, should this issue arise, People don't have to question whether they were objectively receiving Christ's grace as mediated through the sacrament because Father O'Flaherty turns out to be a scumbag. You see what I mean? Because yeah. Father Flaherty isn't acting on his own when he's performing the sacrament. He's representing Christ, and that's what it means to say he's exercising an office. I mean, we speak of this about, you know, like in, in current discussions about the president of the United States. You have to distinguish the office of the presidency and everything it stands for from the person, the office holder. So you can have a morally dissolute person in the White House and yet still have to respect uh, the decisions of the president as valid decisions, provided that, you know, they're within the law, et cetera. But you see, I mean, the, the, the presidency as an office doesn't hang necessarily on uh, the moral excellence of the office holder. Now, again, yeah. that doesn't mean we don't want excellent morally upright presidents or morally upright priests and ministers. But it, it is to make an important conceptual distinction. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so the anti-donatist theology of the church, which includes the doctrine of the ministry and the sacraments that Augustine developed, is upheld not only in the Roman Catholic Church, but um, also in, in mainline Protestant churches too. Um, so, um, though not in, uh, those groups that we would call sectarian. So, uh, in the Anabaptist churches, for instance, they do not uphold an objective notion of the church's holiness. They uphold a subjective notion of the church's holiness. And that's why the ban plays such an important role in those churches, because if you are a member of that church and you do not live up to the standards of that community's uh, moral code, then you can be excommunicated. You see what I mean? Because the, the, the holiness of that congregation depends on the holiness of each of its members, including uh, obviously its ministers. So that would be a Protestant illustration of a donatist understanding of the holiness of the church as a subjective quality. Whereas whether you're a Methodist or an Episcopalian or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a Catholic, 
however much those churches differ from one another, they all agree that the ministry is an office. And so what I do as a minister in my official capacity is valid, even if it turns out that I, as an individual person, have serious moral defects. And so my baptisms, my confirmations, my sermons, they are not rendered invalid. So if somebody should find out, for instance, that Paul Capitz is a man of great moral turpitude <laughs> and, and uh, you know, that has never been said for the record. No, of course not. <laughs> but, but you know, um, think of the Protestant version of this. Let's say that somebody came to faith in the gospel through hearing a sermon of mine and then finds out that this whole time I've been... Um, Killing engaged, people at night. <laughs> engaged in illegal drug traffic or something like that, right? Uh, some, you know, make money laundering or, or God knows what. Um, that person would not have to question whether they really came to faith or not, or God was really acting through my words when they came to faith hearing my sermon. I mean, they might lament that, oh, this person I had such respect for as a minister turns out to be such a scumbag as a person, <laughs> but it doesn't invalidate the objective character of the ministry that I exercise on behalf of the church and, and of Christ. Right. And this whole controversy has particular significance for me, uh, if you'll recall from when I was in seminary with you and the, the long conversations we'd had as I was wrestling with my faith and, and confronting my agnosticism but still feeling called to the ministry, you brought this up as a clear example of being able to perform the duties of a minister, though my faith was in question, uh, such that I was agnostic, because if right. we understand this you know, this controversy fully, it would be to say that as long as, you know, people are coming to God through you and the words that you're preaching through the gospel, then there should be no issue with what you yourself believe specifically because people are still coming to God. Right, right. So um, that's right. And and let, let's bring another distinction into another conceptual theological distinction into the discussion to clarify this. Um, we, you know, we spoke about the University of Paris, and that was a place where scholasticism in theology had its heyday in the Middle Ages. Scholasticism is academic theology at the university that focused on making finely honed conceptual distinctions for the sake of getting rid of confusion. So let's make a distinction here between your subjective faith, whether on any given day of the week you firmly believe in the reality of God and trust that God is good to you, on the one hand, and faith in an objective sense as what the church or the denomination of which you're a minister actually teaches as represented in its creedal and confessional statements on the books on the other hand, okay? Now, what I was saying to you is that provided that when you stand up in the pulpit or you teach a confirmation class or, or whatnot, provided that you are teaching and preaching the contents of doctrine, 
as your church officially recognizes it, then even if you are in great doubt subjectively about whether God exists or not, or whether God is good to you or forgives your sins or what have you, you can still exercise the functions of the ministry responsibly. So again, I think this is, now this is an application of Augustine's doctrine that he didn't think about, but I think it's a perfectly valid consequence of the doctrine. So long as you're preaching every Sunday morning what your church officially approves of, right, then you can exercise that ministry responsibly, even if at any given moment or on any given day, you yourself are in great doubt about it. So right. the, the purpose of this is so that you don't wake up on a Sunday morning and say, I no longer believe in God, and therefore I can't give the sermon responsibly. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? No, I definitely do. I mean, an anarchist can still teach civics, right? Yeah, why not, you know? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I just uh, had a, par- a particular relevance to my life as I pondered what direction I was going to head, um, obviously choosing mammon over God to pursue. Corporate. And you chose mammon, and sometimes I think you made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll Especially tell you what. since I wish I had a lot more of mammon. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, you know what? Mammon sometimes pays the rent. <laughs> I paid, it paid for a trip to Paris, didn't it? It sure did. It I, sure I, can't did. Go, I can't afford to spend three weeks in Paris, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm lucky I work for such a great company. Um, um, I'm glad you do. Yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, but that that's really hitting the nail on the head. Obviously, we've raised the benefits of what came about from an anti-donatist position, you know, talking about what we've just mentioned, but also some of the pitfalls of that, you know, by having uh, morally um, dubious individuals in the priesthood who, you know, are performing the sacraments but aren't themselves holy, so to speak, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, Derek. Let me, let's go back to... Uh, the donut is controversy <coughs> per se. Let me just have a drink of water here. Sure. <laughs> Augustine made a distinction in Latin that's really important. He said that a sacrament is valid provided that it is properly performed and that the Latin term is ex opera operato. That's right. I was trying to think of that phrase. Okay. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Out of and, the, uh, out of the, What's that mean again? Out of the... Out of the work having been performed. Exactly. Out out of the liturgical act having been correctly performed according to the church's stipulations. So provided that the priest intended to perform the sacrament as the church lays it out, and provided that the the recipient intends to receive the sacrament, uh, it's a a valid sacrament— regardless of the moral or spiritual condition of the individual who is a priest. Right, right, yep. And that's what secures the objective character that 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 the grace that is understood to be communicated through the sacrament and that makes one capable of being saved, according to the Catholic Church— does not depend on the moral and spiritual condition of the individual performing the sacrament. Whereas right. the other the other way of putting it, the, the donatist way of putting it, would be that the work the validity of the sacrament does depend on the character of the person performing it. Yeah, so at this point, what I want to do is just take a quick moment to invite our listeners to send us their questions about this particular 
distinction because I, I want to think about or I, I want some insight. What if what if you had a minister in one of your churches uh, who you later found out to be agnostic or atheist? How would that impact your faith, and what would your thoughts be on that? So if you could send us your comments on Facebook, that would be interesting to hear, and any questions you have about that, that would be awesome. I don't know if you would think that would be great to hear, Paul, but... Uh, you know, I, I'd be very interested, but let's just clarify what is being said here, though. It, it's not that the, the minister is a committed atheist, who, who is dissembling about what he or she really believes and is only, I mean, I, I'm assuming that the person who's the minister really and sincerely wants to believe what the church believes, but struggles with doubt. Okay. So it's not like you're, you're, uh, you've made up your mind, you're an atheist and, and, and yet you're just making a living off the church. That That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I would, I would the, challenge you on that, though. I would say if you take it to its limits, that's exactly what you could say. You could say that if I'm an atheist, as long as the words I'm saying are bringing people to God, then it shouldn't matter. I don't see... Well, but it's, it's the same thing that ideally uh, we want our ministers to be morally upstanding people. And well, atheists the, 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 are morally upstanding. What? <laughs> I would say that some atheists, I mean, atheists can be morally upstanding. No, no, no but I, I'm just saying, let's, 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 if we're going to draw a, 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 a new conclusion from the doctrine, let's make sure that it's parallel to what, what's being said. So, so Augustine's doctrine is that a sacrament is valid um, in spite of the moral failings of the person performing the sacrament. But that does not mean that Augustine or the church following Augustine is giving license to people to be immoral. You see what I mean? It's, it's not saying, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's still a failing to, to, uh, uh, not to embody the highest standards of morality. If you're a Catholic priest, for instance, now people have to acknowledge that, there are going to be these failings. And, and the point is that when they are uncovered, that should not shake up the faith of those who have been the recipients of the ministry of these particular priests. So we also, by, you know, the parallel being, we also want our priests to be people of faith in a subjective sense as well, people who sincerely believe the Christian faith and don't simply teach it in spite of the fact that they don't believe it. What I was saying to you, because you seemed like someone who really wanted to believe. Oh, yeah, I, I still well, do. Yeah. See, and this is the point, And this is my point is that not somebody who's decided to make a living as a minister, even though he has already made up his mind for atheism and materialism or something and is untroubled by this discrepancy. Uh, all I was saying to you is that um, as long as you sincerely want to be a Christian, you can, your doubts need not prevent you, even your doubts about the reality of God need not prevent you from entering the vocation of the ministry, um, so long as, to, put, to use Tillich's terms, the content of the Christian faith is the content of your ultimate concern. That, that is to say that you're ultimately concerned about what the Christian church is ultimately concerned about. But, but that's a different way of putting the matter than, than how it's usually put. 
are you willing to sign off on the dotted line to all these various doctrines in the form that they've been handed down to you? Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So I, I was trying to, to give you some freedom not to be hampered by your doubts from pursuing your sense of real calling to the ministry. Because I, I, I think that, you see, we live in a culture, a Protestant culture that has been profoundly shaped by Protestants who are Donatists. So think about um, so many of these evangelical churches you hear where the minister uh, has a fall from grace. Like Rich, what's that, the Bakers or whatever? Oh, the Bakers, our friend, right, we had uh, dinner with uh, their son at my house, remember? Mm-hmm. Um, he became one of our students at the seminary, and you know his father was sent to prison for... Um, you know, uh, some kind of financial or something. Yeah. And, and, but, but the, the, the point is the whole church fell apart. Once the, uh, the truth about the minister came out into the open, that the minister is an immoral person. Therefore the, the entire ministry is invalid. That's not what happens in the Catholic church or the Methodist church or the Episcopal church or the Lutheran church. Right. And so, uh, you know, but, but we have, we have a, a Protestant culture in America that has been so profoundly shaped by the contrary tendency uh, against which Augustine was fighting right. that, you know, um, the idea that a minute that somebody could be a minister who had any doubt whatsoever from a religious or existential perspective is, is unheard of. It's unthinkable. You know, and and that attitude has unfortunately creeped into our mainline Protestant denominations unawares. And so, like, I'll give you an example that I've often counseled seminarians on. So when they're having to write these ordination papers for their denominations, the, the, the committees put students in a bind. Not intentionally, because the the people who are on these committees are confused theologically themselves, and they haven't thought through these issues. But they tell students to write a paper about what you really think theologically. But then students who are struggling with the uh, theological questions in seminary, as they should, know that if they put honestly on paper what they're thinking at the moment, that there's going to be a discrepancy between that and what the official doctrine of their denominations is. And and here's the bind that those committees put candidates for ordination in. They're really looking to see if students who are going to be ordained into that church are going to teach and preach the gospel faithfully according to the doctrinal norms of that denomination. So Methodists have a vested interest in making sure that the ministers that they ordain are really going to preach the Methodist gospel. Lutherans have a vested interest in making sure their people are really going to be preaching a a Lutheran gospel and not a Christian scientist gospel or uh, a Mormon gospel or uh, a New Age gospel. You see, and and that's a legitimate thing, but that's not what they tell students they're looking for, right? Um, They they conflate two distinct tasks, and that's where I think a lot of 
misunderstanding comes in, um, they should be asking two separate questions. Uh, one is, what do you understand Methodist doctrine or Lutheran doctrine to be? And uh, can you, in, in good integrity, uphold it in your preaching and teaching? And then the second question would be, and where do you happen to be right now on your theological journey of understanding the various dot? You see what I mean? Yeah. And, and, that, and that's what I was saying to you is, is by, by applying Augustine's anti-Donatist doctrine of the church and the ministry, not to morality, but to this existential question, making a, a similar parallel distinction between faith in a subjective sense and faith in the objective sense of what is actually taught, um, you know, it, it would free people up to be truly themselves, you know. Um, so you don't walk into the pulpit on Sunday morning if you had an existential crisis on Sunday, on Saturday night, and say, gee, I can't preach the sermon anymore because I just lost my faith in God, you know. Uh, no, you go you go and you preach the sermon just like you would even if you had faith in God, because next week you might have faith in God again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I mean that no, that that's the point, you know, is that is that is that we fluctuate so much as human beings, whether you talk about faith in a subjective sense or holiness in a subjective sense, right? I mean, mm. uh, you know, and and I mean again that that shows that. You know, you can have a more superficial. I'm obviously an Augustinian, so I'm taking a side here. I'm taking Augustine's side of this debate. You can have a more superficial or a more profound understanding of sin. So, for example, let's say that you obey all the rules, and on the on to a superficial observer, you look like a very moral person, but you're seething with hatred inside you uh, about your 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 neighbor or, or in, you know, but nobody ever sees this side of you. And, and Augustine, Augustine was not superficial to be deluded into thinking that the people who follow all the rules, maybe the pe the priests, okay, the priests who aren't child molesters, let's say, mm -hmm. just because they're not child molesters doesn't mean they're not sinners. Right. You see what I mean? Right. In some more profound sense of the word that, that is not looked at when people are coming up with these lists of sins. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, so from his perspective, given his very thorough understanding of sin as kind of permeating the whole personality, where are you going to find these kind of morally upright? Sorry, I keep hitting my hands on that. Sorry. <laughs> I can't do this without moving my hands. I warned, just for the listeners, I warned Paul before today's episode. I said, Paul, do not hit your hands on the table because you do it every time you talk and it makes the thud on the microphone. Uh, and he did so well. We're 38 minutes in and okay. he finally slapped the table like I knew he would. But okay. I recognized it the minute it happened, right? Yeah, right. Okay. So, so you see what my point is, is that um, whose faith subjectively speaking, is so strong that it never wavers. Nobody's. And if they tell well, you that, they're lying. Then, then who's qualified to be a minister if we have a, a an anti-donat, I mean, a donatist doctrine of the church and the ministry Nobody. as Protestants? Jesus. That, that's, the, <laughs> that's the point, you know, and... Um, you know, when I was teaching at the seminary, uh, the one you went to, uh, I often thought that 
some of my colleagues would do well to try to uh, develop an anti-donatist pedagogy where they would see themselves as beholden to teach objectively contents that they might not agree with, but to do so fairly and precisely. Um, because I thought that some of those people just couldn't dis couldn't separate themselves as teachers from themselves as persons mm -hmm. in, the in the way that's required of being a professional. I, think I don't fair. mean, I don't mean that, that we're not all integrated or should be integrated at some level, but I just mean that, um, you know, there, uh, I'll, I'll give you a great example of this. I may have told you this. Um, one of the best compliments I got from a student at United Seminary, and this was at when, when historical theology was still a two-semester course, and we went through the whole history of Christian theology in two semesters instead of one semester. Um, at the end of the second semester, she came up to me and she said, I got to tell you something. When you first started teaching this course last semester, I thought you were personally teaching us the theology that you believe in because you were so passionate in, in explaining it to us as if it were the gospel truth. And then as the second semester rolled around, I began to realize you can't possibly be agreeing with everything you're teaching us because these theologians don't all agree with each other. And yet each time we came to the next figure, you presented that figure as if it were the gospel truth. Mm -hmm. and, I said to, and I said to her, you got the point of the course. Mm -hmm. You see, it's possible to be objective about a content and to put yourself, hold yourself in abeyance so that other people can respond to the, can understand it, fairly and impartially, and then make their own subjective decisions. I wasn't there trying to pe teach people my own theology. Yeah, it wasn't Not the theology of Paul Capitz, it was historical that's the theology. Point. That's the point. I don't think all my colleagues grasp that distinction. No, but just for our listeners, and just so you know, Paul, at some point once we go through the history of theology, we are going to get into the theology of Paul Capitz and the theology of I, and I'm happy, And I'm happy to talk about that, but we need to make a, a distinction when that transition is made. Absolutely. And like, and like tonight, I tip my hand by saying I side with Augustine here. I think he made a really important you know, distinction. You're seeping with bias. Uh, well, it's it's, well thought <laughs> I, it's not it's not unexamined bias. It, it means that I've thought through the issues, and I think he's right. No one can fault you for being uh, lacking uh, or for not being thorough. That's for sure. In your exploration of faith. <laughs> well, Derek, I think tonight we've discussed uh, the Donatist controversy. I don't think we should go on to the Pelagian controversy. Do you agree that we should save that for another podcast? Yeah, yeah. I think at this point, you know, we like to keep them around 45 minutes to an hour. And, you know, even some of the hour ones get a little long because you're just go we're going over so much information. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm fine okay. with, with so wrapping it up tonight. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with respect to the Donatist controversy? Just an observation that when I challenged you earlier that an atheist might be able to be a minister, I think you might have won that debate, but I got to chew on it for a little bit. I'm not so sure. What, what I mean by that, I, I, what I mean by that is that somebody should not be selling a product they really don't believe in. And and if you if you if you have your your moments of doubt, that's fine. 
I mean, including doubt about the existence of God. That's that's not off limits. But what I mean is that if you should honestly conclude that Christianity is an illusion and that, that as a person you will never be able to embrace it again, that you, you've thought through the issues and you've, you've come down definitively on the side of atheism, unless you... And there have been people who have done this. I mean, unless you are, are willing to defend some kind of atheistic understanding of Christianity, um, you know, but, but uh, you know, and then we could have a discussion about that. But, but <laughs> unless you're willing to do that, if, if, you're, if you're just sticking in the profession in order to make a buck, but you don't really believe in the product, then I, then, then I don't think that's good. So essentially what you're saying and, is and 60% of salespeople sell, who sell products they don't believe in to make a quick buck. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine what we're talking about here. You know what I mean? No, yeah. Um, I was being facetious. Okay, okay. All right. No okay. disrespect to all the salespeople out there who are listening. I actually work in sales, and we sell a great product, and I believe in it. So I'm not on that side of the sales divide. <laughs> Uh, well, thank but, you. But when, but when I preach a sermon, let me just. But when I preach a sermon, um, I preach with integrity. But what I mean by that is that I preach a sermon that I think I need to hear. In other words, I'm not necessarily preaching out of my own strong faith because my faith might be very weak. But I nonetheless feel I need to hear what I'm saying to others in the hopes that my own faith might be strengthened. Well, I think essentially what you're saying is it has to be equally as valid and meaningful to you as it is to those who are listening. Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying I, I'm not saying something that I already know I don't believe in. You know what I mean? Right, oh. right. I'll buy what you're selling. Okay. I think, okay, I think I'll okay. side with you on this. We've, okay. We've, we've and, got it. And by the way, if people want to hear or, or read my sermons, they're all posted online at our uh, church's website at Christ Church by the Sea in Newport Beach, California. You just go and uh, the written version as well as the uh, audio version are there. And if you want to hear what I've been preaching, um, they're there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I encourage all of you to listen to those. And uh, as always, Paul, thank you so much for your clear, right. concise, and engaging ex uh, explanations on these topics. I, I apologize for my hands slapping on the table. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on them, folks. Uh, but thanks right. for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next week when we dive into the Pelagian controversy, where we will be going over, uh, I think, probably the final stage of the Augustinian exploration. Would you say that's yeah, fair? Yeah, that'll, that'll be the last chapter on augustine okay that's five episodes he's a big so figure we'll though never, we'll never leave him as long as we're talking about medieval theology including the reformation well we, we don't even leave him as we talk about modern contemporary theology that's so. true too okay. all right well thanks everybody you enjoy the rest of your week and we look forward to uh coming back at you next week with a new episode bye everybody take care